All right, here we are on uh, part 20 of our series. Uh, we've got uh, a few more parts left, and I'm going to talk about, uh, towards the end of this class, I'm going to talk about what I'm going to do in the last four classes. Uh, because I've, I've taught through these uh, books of Genesis many times, and, and this, is, this one's a little bit different. I've, I've made things a little bit different for this particular class, uh, it's really starting today, and I'll try to point that out as we get there. So today, uh, we're in the latter part of chapter 9. We're going to talk about Noah's three sons. We're going to talk about Noah's moral failure, the one that's recorded in the Bible, uh, the one and only one that's actually recorded in the Bible, Noah's moral failure, uh, Ham's disgraceful behavior, Shem and Japheth's righteousness in contrast, uh, then Noah cursing Canaan, very uh, peculiar section of the Bible, and we're going to talk about what, uh, what, why is it that he cursed Canaan um, and not Ham, and uh, what it means. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about attempts to use the Bible to justify slavery, um, and we're going to do, it's just going to be just a little bit about that, because I'm going to come back to the Bible and race uh, very extensively in the last four classes that we do uh, in this study. Uh, then we're going to talk about how Noah blesses Shem and Japheth and Noah's last years and the end of the Toledot of Noah. So that's today. Uh, first, let's review what we did last time. So uh, last time uh, they come off the ark, Noah builds an, an altar, sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, God speaks to Noah and the three sons and commands them to multiply and fill the earth, just like he had commanded Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Uh, he introduces a new freedom. They're allowed to eat meat. They had previously only allowed to be able to eat vegetables. And a new mandate, um, the death penalty for murderers. Uh, so the previous, the week before last, we had uh, talked about the fact that the flood lasted a year and God had finally uh, commanded Noah to leave the ark. The first thing he does is build this altar and he does a massive sacrifice. One of every clean animal and bird uh, would have been very messy to slaughter all those animals. Uh, God reacts to the offering. The word translated soothing here, uh, nikoak, is uh, often translated pleasing and has the idea of pleasing. So Noah was, what was God really pleased with? He was pleased with Noah's attitude in sacrificing to him. Uh, and then, of course, we get the revelation that men are still sinful, the very explicit stating that men are still sinful, that uh, wiping out every, all but eight people did not wipe out sinfulness in, in mankind. Um, so um, God then blesses the son, Noah and his sons, um, and then he gives a command, uh, the same command that he had given to Adam and Eve in Genesis one twenty-eight. So in Genesis one twenty-eight, he told Adam and Eve, uh, he blessed them, just like he blesses Noah here. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and uh, <clears throat> fill the earth and have dominion over the animals. Now, so Noah and his sons get this same command, but the world is different because between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, we have this massive uh, event in Genesis chapter 3, the fall. And, so, and it affects the entire world. The world is broken because of the fall. Um, and now instead of harmony... Uh, among all of God's creation, there's fear and terror, uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 9. So uh, remember from Genesis chapter 1, uh, he had, God had given 
plants to eat for people explicitly. He had also given only plants to eat for animals explicitly. And then at the end of that little set passage, Genesis 1, 29 and 30, the Bible tells us, and it was so. So there's no confusion about whether God said it and everybody just ignored it or whatever. No, and it was so. Um, and so there was no meat eating. Um, it was not permitted anyway. Um, so... And, of course, people, after the fall, people could have sinfully disobeyed this command, just like they sinfully disobeyed other commands. But the point is, the command was not changed until Genesis chapter 9, what we studied last time. So, there's also this new law, that uh, the death penalty for murder. And explicitly in the passage is the reason why there's such a severe penalty for that particular transgression, and it's because murder destroys an image bearer of God. Um, And then he repeats the command to populate the earth abundantly, fill up the earth with people, and uh, we'll see in Genesis 11, of course, that they flagrantly disregard this command. They don't spread out and fill the earth like God commanded, they clump together, and God takes action to force them to spread out. Uh, and then we have the explicit, uh, the explicit institution of the Noahic Covenant, uh, the fact that God is not going to destroy the world again with a flood. Um, it's the first explicit covenant uh, in the Bible, and it's remarkable for a few things. For its breadth, it, it embraces every living creature. Its permanence, it says, for all successive generations, and it says it's everlasting. And its generosity was unconditional and undeserved. And so then we did a little summary at the very end of last week saying that the Bible treats the flood. How does the rest of the Bible treat the flood? Um, It treats the flood as a worldwide event. Um, The conditions in Noah's day as described uh, in Genesis chapter 6 are uh, very extreme wickedness. Um, And then there are many other verses in the Bible that talk about um, God's justification in um, the way he judged the world. Um, there's many scriptures about the flood in the book of Job, the book of Psalms, Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, Hebrew, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Um, and the flood itself, this whole story of the flood, the reason why the Bible emphasizes it so much, spends four whole chapters talking about it, is uh, it, it demonstrates some spiritual truths that are important for us to understand. One, God retains ultimate control of world events. He's sovereign over his cre- creation. Two, God can and will judge sin. He's perfectly holy, righteous, and just. Number three, God can and does exercise grace, even in judgment. He is grace, merciful and gracious. So at the same time, he's righteous and just and merciful and gracious. He's never, he never lays either one of those aside. Um, and, and, equal, and the point of the whole story that... Uh, that Peter makes is an equally universal and final judgment will be carried out in the world on God's timetable. And that's the second coming of Christ and the great white throne judgment. That's why, really, today, the flood is so important. So, that's what we learned last time. And so today we're going to go back to the post-flood world and see what it was like uh, immediately after the flood. So we're going to talk about the sons of Noah Noah's still around too. We're going to talk about him as well. So our scripture passage is going to be uh, these last verses of chapter 9. So 
uh, from verse 18 through 29. So if you'll get out your Bible or a device with the Bible on there and open up to Genesis chapter 9. Okay, let's read through. So here's the word of God. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So let's take a look at this passage. First, an overview. So after God made his covenant with Noah and his three sons, they all seem to have lived fairly close to each other for the next few decades. And so I'm going to point out as we go along here the, the clues here in the scripture that tells us that time has passed. This is not a few minutes after they came off the ark. This is years. This narrative, we pick it up here in verse 18, is years after they have come off the ark. Not just a few days, not a few months, but years. Uh, The narrative moves on to the time by which Noah's youngest son, Ham, had fathered his own fourth and youngest son, Canaan. So Canaan is Ham's fourth son. And so, and all of them were born after the flood. And so, there's been at least enough years for Canaan to have had four sons by the time this narrative takes place here. So, time has passed. So, as we're reading through the Bible, sometimes you go verse to verse to verse, and you and you might slip into the thought pattern that this one thing happened just a little, you know, a few days or whatever, right after this other thing. But no, years have passed here. Between last lesson and this lesson, years have passed. Uh, Noah begins to till the ground, and one of the things he plants is a vineyard. So he starts farming. He's come off the ark, and he starts planting various things, and one of the things he plants is a vineyard to grow grapes. Uh, We see the lapse by the righteous Noah, uh, the only lapse that's mentioned in the Bible by this man. Uh, Noah became drunk with wine, from wine and fell naked in his tent. Ham looked upon his father's shame and rejoiced in it. Shem and Japheth act honorably and cover Noah. Uh, Noah curses Canaan, Ham's youngest son, not Ham, notice. Uh, Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. And then we see that Noah dies at the age of 950, having lived about 300 years after the flood. So 
Uh, that's kind of a little bit of an overview of what we're going to study here, and let's take a look at the details. So the first two verses tell us that uh, Noah and his sons have come out of the ark. We learned that last time. Uh, and he, and they're, they're named, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, and Ham was the father of Canaan. We get this curious thing. One particular grandson is is singled out here, and it's and it's the fourth son. We'll find out in, in chapter 10 that this is the fourth son of Ham. So it seems very odd here without any explanation. Why do we get the fourth son of uh, Ham called out here? Uh, very odd. Um, these three were the son of Noah, and then we get this explicit uh, indication that it's the, from these three, all, the whole earth was populated. So Noah's sons are named here in verse 18 for the first time since they boarded the ark. They're named in, ver- in chapter 7 when they're getting on the ark. And then after that, all we get is the fact that it's Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, so that we know that it's eight people. It's eight people, it's eight people, it's eight people, it's eight people. They come off the ark, they're eight people. And finally here in 18, we get their names again, who they are for the first time uh, since they got on the ark. Uh, They're named particularly. Uh, Then we see in verse 19 that it is definitely from these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that the whole earth was populated. So the Bible does not mention Noah having any other sons or daughters. And this passage makes it explicit that everyone who has lived since the flood, and therefore everyone alive today, is descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There's nobody else. There's no other uh, ancestors for any of us. So if you look around the room today, every single person sitting here is descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. No, Absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, so what does that tell you? We're all close relatives. Every one of us is close relatives from the same family. Uh, we also see a new name uh, for the first time here, uh, Canaan, who is the first named grandson of Noah, although the, for, not the first one born. <clears throat> so, first named son of uh, Noah in the Bible, uh, this man Canaan. Uh, we find out later, uh, next chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, that Canaan is the youngest of Ham's four sons. So, we can deduce from this that years have passed, and years enough for him to have four sons after the flood. Uh, Canaan is singled out because he is important to the subsequent narrative. Uh, he, he and his descendants will actually be important for quite a, quite a swath of the Bible. Uh, we, we get the Canaanites as a, uh, a primary enemy of the nation of Israel for a large chunk of the Old Testament. And so this is their... Um, progenitor Canaan. Uh, He's singled out here in the narrative. Um, And then we see uh, Noah, what he he does. So in the years after the flood, Noah becomes a farmer. He starts farming. He plants things. He plants, in uh, this passage, it talks about him planting a vineyard. Um, He drank of the wines and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, once again, Uh, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So what's going on here? This is an odd, another odd section of the Bible. What's really going on? So he begins planting crops. One of his crops is grapes. He harvests the grapes. He makes wine, and he allows it to ferment. Uh, The use of the article here, the word for, uh, Hebrew word for wine is yayin, and it's, the article is here, hayayin. 
And so that's the wine. And that suggests that Noah was familiar with winemaking from before the flood. This is not new. Um, and so he would have known its intoxicating nature. And that wouldn't, so he wasn't caught by surprise here. Yes? Is it possible that he made grape juice and let it sit around for too long? Um, so, I mean, un- unlikely from the way this Hebrew is structured. Okay. Um, yeah, unlikely. Um, and especially because they had 1,500 years to figure that out before the flood. Um, so, if, if, it, if it was done by accident, it, it happened in that 1,500 years before the flood. Somebody let it run. Hey, look what happens when you let it lie around. Uh, yeah. So, unlikely from this structure that he was, he was caught by surprise here. Uh, Noah became drunk, which was sinful. Uh, the Bible is full of admonitions about uh, drinking in the book of Proverbs, for example, and, of course, in the New Testament as well. Uh, he becomes drunk, and one of the results was that he uncovered himself, though at least it was inside his tent. The Bible says it was inside his tent, not lying out there in public. Um, the Bible, one of the lessons we get here, the Bible, unlike most ancient books, does not hide the faults of even its greatest heroes. Ancient books and modern books, too. Uh, if we're talking about a hero, usually the book's not going to point out his faults. But the Bible is uh, somewhat unique in this way. For example, uh, not just uh, Noah, but Moses, for example. He disobeyed God and was denied entry into the Promised Land. Uh, God rebuked Job, and Job repented. And Job is um, a court, court of, a hero of the faith, and so is Moses. David, the one who's um, his, um, after God's own heart, he commits adultery and murder. The Bible doesn't hide any of those things. It, it brings them right out. Um, only Christ was sinless. And so here we get, we have this long narrative about Noah, and before we leave Noah's story, we get this incident where he, he has a moral lapse. Uh, the Bible doesn't try to hide that. Uh, okay, so ever since Adam and Eve fell, nakedness in public was regarded as shameful. So what did Adam and Eve do as soon as their eyes were open, the tr- the, eating the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? They knew they were naked, and they covered themselves up. Uh, so nakedness was um, associated with being ashamed ever since the fall. Um, and so here's uh, Noah, he, he falls naked, although it's inside his tent. <clears throat> So the phrase here, uncovered himself, it's a single word in Hebrew, vayit gal. This may have been an involuntary act of letting his robe slip as he lay down to sleep off his wine. However, once again, it was at least inside his tent. He's not lying out there in the street, it's inside his tent. Then the narrative moves to Ham, Noah's youngest son, and again he's identified with his youngest, Ham's youngest son. Very odd, until we read on further in the passage and see why. Why is uh, Ham continually identified with his fourth son? So he saw the the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Well, that doesn't seem that bad. I mean, it doesn't seem that bad in the English. Um, a couple of things to point out. One, Ham was not a youngster at this point. He's, he's Noah's youngest son, but he was about 100. He was almost 100 when he got on the ark. And he said now he had time to father four sons after the flood. 
So he's not, it's not like Ham is a teenager or something. Um, he's a grown man. Uh, been around for a while. Should know better. Um, okay, so Ham manages to spot his father's nakedness. But the text suggests much more than accidental seeing. So the Hebrew, vayar, in this case, means that he looked at. That's how it's translated. But the sense of the looking is violating a boundary. So it has the sense of looking in violation of a boundary, of a known boundary. Uh, that's the sense of that word, vayar. Uh, the same Hebrew word, vayar, is used in 1 Samuel 6, 19. When God killed 70 people because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. They looked into the Ark of the, of the Covenant. They knew they weren't supposed to. They violated a boundary by looking at the Ark of the Covenant. And God wiped out 70 people. That's the same word, vayar. So this word has a, a really strong negative connotation. It's, it's somebody looking at something they know they're not supposed to look at. And there's dire consequences to it. <clears throat> so instead of honoring his father, who had led him to safety on the ark, Ham deliberately takes action to dishonor his father, and then runs to tell his brothers to try to increase his father's shame. So once again, the Hebrew word translated and told, vayaged, has the connotation and told with delight. Told with delight. So he runs to his brothers and says, guess what I just saw our father doing? <laughs> I saw him naked and drunk. <laughs> told with delight. He's delighted to reveal this moral failure of his father. Um, that's the connotation of vayaget. Um, told with delight. Um, it doesn't. So those two things don't really come out in the English, do they? Um, and so I can remember being confused by this passage. It just didn't seem that bad. And and then I looked at the Hebrew. And when you look at the Hebrew, it's really bad. What he did, uh, deliberately uh, violated a boundary by looking into the tent, and then told with delight about his father's uh, dishonor in order to increase it, really. That's what he's doing, running to his brothers, yeah. So, so the connotation of that Hebrew is that it didn't, he wasn't just happening to walk by and glance and saw. He, he had to have gone in there in violation of a boundary in order to look and delight in his father's nakedness. So, so the boundary was lack of respect for his father. Right, right. Lack of respect for his, his father. And the fact that the father was inside the tent and he had to go in there yeah. to really see it. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so yeah, that's the connotation of the Hebrew. That it's, this is really bad. He, he's deliberately dishonoring his father in a, in a terrible way. And then trying to increase the dishonor by running and telling with delight his brothers. Um, yeah, it's very shameful behavior. Uh, <clears throat> but then we see, verse 22, uh, But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. In other words, they went out of their way to respect the boundary and not look. So Ham's older brothers, Shem and Japheth, were having none of that nonsense that 
that uh, Ham is bringing to them. Shem and Japheth were then, by their deeds, shown to be righteous men who honored their father. Uh, they were clearly distressed by what they heard from Ham and immediately took steps to cover their father's nakedness and restore his honor. So it says uh, Shem and Japheth took a garment, uh, or that word can also be translated robe, hasimla, uh, garment or robe. Uh, so kind of a one piece, a long one piece uh, a thing. Uh, and in olden times, a robe would be worn both as a garment by day and a blanket by night. And so then the two righteous brothers took the robe, they put it on their shoulders, they walked backwards. They walked backwards towards Noah and put the robe on him without looking, the Bible tells us. Uh, so something like this. You know, this is some artist's depiction of it. You know, this big, long, one-piece robe, they put it on their shoulder, they walked backwards, they lay it backwards, uh, taking every possible precaution not to uh, look on their father's disgrace and to cover him up so nobody else can. Um, they, uh, they do what they can to restore their father's honor. Um, and then we see this, another curious, uh, there's many curious things in this uh, little passage. When Noah woke from his wine, so he was drunk, he finally wakes up. He knew, the Bible says he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. So somehow, the Bible doesn't say how, Noah knew what his youngest son had done. Um, and notice we get here very specific. I've been calling Ham the youngest son all along, but that's because the Bible tells us for certain here in this verse that Ham was the youngest. Uh, and so there's been some confusion over the year about what uh, the order of these uh, brothers were, but we know for sure Ham was the youngest. Uh, we also know from other places in the Bible that uh, Shem was 100 two years after the flood. So two years after the flood, at the age of 100, he starts having kids, Shem. But the Bible tells, so that makes Noah how old? He's 600 when the flood ends, 602. So Noah was 602 when Shem is 100. That means Noah was 502 when Shem was born. But the Bible tells us that he started having his kids when he was 500. So that all the, uh, from all those scriptures, we can deduce for certain that Japheth was the oldest, born when Noah was 500. Shem was the second, born when Noah was 502. And the Bible tells us that Ham was the youngest. So it's Japheth, Shem, Ham. Uh, we can deduce from all the, the scripture information that's given to us. But here it tells us for certain Ham was the youngest. Um, and for somehow... Uh, Noah knew uh, what he what had been done, and he and he gives a curse. Um, the phrase "had done" here, uh, there's so much fascinating Hebrew here. Uh, the the phrase "had done" asa uh, has dire connotations in cases like this. Uh, compared to a couple of other places in Scripture where this phrase is used, uh, or slight variations of this phrase using that same verb in different forms. Uh, what is this that you have done? God to Eve when she had eaten the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. What have you done? God to Cain after he murdered Abel in 4.10. So this phrase, had done, um, announces dire consequences in the Bible. Uh, 
uh, on many occasions, and this is no, no, no different. So once he knows what he had done, um, Noah pronounces a curse. Uh, now we see why the nar- narrative has repeatedly referred to Ham as the father of Canaan. Why, why is Canaan in this thing at all? Well, here we go. Here we go. Uh, Noah's going to curse Canaan. Uh, he curses not Ham, but Ham's youngest son. Uh, this is, again, very curious. Ham does something bad, and so his kid gets punished. Very curious. Um, so in, ha- in response to Ham's evil deed, Noah curses Canaan. Hmm. Very interesting. So what, what happens next? So uh, why would Noah curse Canaan instead of Ham, who actually committed the deed? Why is this? So uh, commentators have struggled over this over the years, and uh, most commentators seem to agree that since God had already blessed all three sons of Noah, including Ham, in Genesis 9-1. So uh, Noah was right there, and he heard God bless him and his three sons. So Noah did not have the authority to countermand God's blessing with a curse. He couldn't curse Ham. God had blessed him, couldn't countermand, had no authority to countermand and curse someone that God had blessed. So the curse was that Canaan, so instead he curses Canaan, one of his. So instead of cursing his own youngest son, Ham, he curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Uh, So the curse was, and this was the curse, Canaan and his descendants would be a servant of servants to Shem and Japheth and their descendants. And so this phrase, servant of servants, is what's known grammatically as a superlative genitive. And what that means is it's an emphasis that uh, shows that it's uh, an extreme case. Uh, So it it means something like the most abject servitude. Uh, And you can compare other, uh, this grammatical uh, structure is used, uh, for example, in the titles of Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, meaning he's the supreme king and the supreme lord. Uh, It's a superlative genitive. Well, in this case, it's a superlative negative. It's a a supreme uh, or or an extreme negative. Uh, servant of servants. So, let me just take a little detour here um, and talk about a curious thing that happened in more modern times. Um, So, there were attempts to justify slavery in early modern times based on this passage, uh, a twisting of this passage of Scripture. Uh, there was a, f- a popular false notion, many times referred to as cur- the curse of Ham, uh, that as a result of Noah's curse, black Africans who were descendants of Ham were enslaved by the descendants of Noah's two other sons in South and North America. Now, uh, so what's the problem with this particular notion? Uh, first, there is no such thing in the Bible as a curse of Ham. Uh, there is only a curse of Canaan. There is no curse of of Ham. There's no such thing as this notion of a curse of Ham. And, furthermore, there's not the slightest evidence that the curse that is in the Bible 
had anything to do with skin color. Uh, and how do we know this? We know this because the Egyptians painted frescoes, paintings on the wall, of different people groups, all sorts of different people groups that they encountered. They, they, they had these drawings, these paintings, anatomically correct paintings, notably in the tomb of Seti I, and the Canaanites are pictured there by name, with the word Canaanites there, and they're not depicted with dark skin. In contrast, the Nubians, likely descendants of Ham's son Cush, were depicted with dark skin. So people with dark skin were depicted with dark skin in these frescoes of the Egyptians, and the Canaanites didn't have dark skin. So we know from these Egyptian paintings that the Canaanites did not have dark skin. And the curse was only on Canaan and his descendants. And there's no curse anywhere in the Bible on Cush or his descendants. There, had, there was also, uh, a number of years ago, a detailed secular study of this issue. There was a book written called The Curse of Ham by a man named David Goldberg, uh, not a believer. And he writes in the book, his conclusion after he studied this whole thing is, it comes as no surprise to learn that growing insistence on the chimerical curse coincides with the increasing numbers of black Africans taken as slaves. In other words, the rise of the African slave trade came first, and then this notion of a curse of ham. So, so what's going on here? So this is the tale as old as time. People sin, and then they look around for a way to rationalize and justify their sin, right? Well, going all the way back to Adam. So what did Adam do when he sinned? He points to God, he answers God and said, the woman you gave me caused me to sin. So it's not Adam's fault, it's somebody else's fault. There's always a rationalization, a deflection. And so with the rise of this, uh, the, the African slave trade arose this ridiculous twisting of the scriptures to try to justify um, that sinful behavior. Um, and so we have this historical record, and it was very well thoroughly documented and researched by this man, David Goldberg, once again, not a believer, but he just looked at the historical record, and he found that the slave trade came first, and then the justification uh, came next. This idea, which is not in the Bible, of a curse of ham, and the idea that it had something to do with skin color, which it, it obviously does not. Okay, yes. Right. It, it, it was strictly a, way, a twisting of scripture in order to try to justify sinful behavior. And so we've seen that, we, you see that over and over again, but this is just one particular example of people trying to, uh, obviously twisting scripture, if you look at what the scripture actually says, it doesn't say what they're trying to make it say, uh, to justify sinful behavior. So what does the Bible teach about the slave trade? Uh, let's take a look. Uh, Exodus 21.16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him, or, is, or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. This is clear, unambiguous. Anyone who engaged in man-stealing, the, liber, the literal Hebrew there, uh, translated kidnap, is man-stealing. Anyone who engaged in man-stealing or kidnapping, um, the punishment that God prescribed was death. 
Notice that the verse assumes or implies that the purpose of man stealing was to sell the victim as a slave. Whether the actual transaction has taken place, the, 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 the kidnaps a man, whether he has already sold him or not, or he still has him, the death penalty, because he's he's man stealing. Yes. <coughs> Clarify the semantic range of the word slavery using because doulos is yeah, yeah, yeah. later on as mm-hmm. bond servant, meaning that it's not involuntary, it's voluntary. So, servitude. yeah, so, yeah, so this is obviously the context here is saying that he, the person is stolen. <laughs> There's no volunteering here at all. He's kidnapped or stolen, man stealing. And so, if we look at the, the African slave trade, it was man stealing. It, this was not people weren't volunteering to get on those ships, right? It's, it, it's a clear case. That, so the African slave trade clearly falls into this category: man stealing, kidnapped in order to sell into slavery. And and God's word is really clear. What's the punishment? Death, death, death penalty. Uh, whether the final transaction has been concluded or not. If you're stealing that, if you're man stealing or kidnapping somebody in order to sell them, uh, death penalty. That was really clear, and so, uh, so, so, what are these people that are engaged in this slave trade? You know, at some level, their conscience—God gave everybody a conscience. At some level, they know that they're doing something evil, and they look around for a way to justify it. And one of the ways they look around to justify it is they, they try to twist scripture to do it. Uh, we see this today with uh, the issue of abortion. Abortion is um, obviously evil, and and now we have. Uh, the governor of California putting up billboards saying, hey, come to California uh, to have an abortion with a Bible verse at the bottom uh, about loving your neighbor or something, and therefore you want to have, go have an abortion. Uh, twisting scripture to, agenda, to, uh, um, to justify sinful behavior. Um, tale as old as time. Definitely um, an application with African slavery, and still today an application with the issue of abortion. So, man-stealing, very clear, got unambiguous, death penalty for that. So it can't possibly have been okay because of some fanciful curse of hand to do that. Uh, So, uh, back to the narrative. Uh, That was a little detour, and so... um, Usually when I get to this part of of the scripture in this lesson, I, I talk a lot more about what the Bible has to say about race. Um, But I'm going to do that um, very thoroughly in this course the last four weeks. The last four weeks, we're really going to focus on what the Bible has to say about race. Um, And so that's that's all we're going to get today. Uh, So we go back to the narrative in the Bible. So verse 26, he, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. And so uh, we see later on in the Bible that this immorality begun by Ham extended into Canaan and developed to a revolting degree in the Canaanites. The Canaanites were wicked, wicked people. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, extremely wicked people, uh, these descendants of Canaan. Um, and so, uh, so we'll, we'll see that later on. So, uh, and, and we eventually, well, 
I'll get to it in a minute. So Noah then he blesses. Notice how the blessing starts. It doesn't start actually with Shem. It starts with, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's how the blessing starts. The God of Shem. So uh, what do we know from that? What do we see from that? Now this is a prophecy. This is Noah acting as a prophet. Um, and he's talking about his, what his descendants and what's going to happen. But he says, the God of Shem. And so what does that mean about Shem? Shem is a true believer. He, he, Noah's identifying that here. Uh, that that uh, Shem's God is the Lord. The Lord, the God of Shem. Uh, and then he says, let Canaan be his servant. He's already said that before. That's kind of repeating that. Um, and it's of notice, of course, that um, how this blessing goes and how it fits with the rest of the narrative of, of scripture whose line produces the messiah shem's line so it's going to be shem's line that produces the messiah not japheth and not ham so the blessing starts with the line that will lead to the messiah and the blessing includes very particularly starts with the lord and the lord god um, okay, so, and then also Canaan would be Shem's servant, uh, and we see later on, we'll see, uh, of course, we'll, there's lots of interactions with Israel and Canaan, and the Canaanites, um, and Josh, in the book of Joshua, uh, the children of Israel go in, and they, and they slaughter Canaanites, and God tells them, God orders them in some cases to kill them all, kill these Canaanites. Uh, now, they don't finish the job, there are some left, and those, some that are left are a thorn in Israel's side for years and generations and generations. But finally, at the time of Solomon, the ones that are left are forced into slave labor under Solomon. So they're either killed or they're forced into slave labor in the end. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, the Jewish Semite king Solomon levied forced laborers from all the remaining Canaanites. So that's, that's what the Bible tells us is the, the ultimate fate of the Canaanites. They're, they're either slaughtered or they're forced into slave labor in the end, and slave labor to the descendants of Shem. So the Bible closes that loop. Yeah. Is that, is that different when you talk about that slave labor? Is that different than the man-stealing you were talking about? Uh, yes, it is. Um, and so this is forced labor of people that are um, subject to this king. Right, so they're they're within the borders of his kingdom. They're subject to the king, and the king can essentially he's the government. So the government is ordering people to do certain things. So yes, it's different from man stealing uh, and forcing people into slavery. It's an action of the government. Uh, now the government can do wicked things as well, uh, but. This is actually a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Uh, yeah. So uh, Japheth's blessing is given in relation to Shem. And so notice Shem's blessing is given first, not Japheth. Japheth is the oldest, but Shem's is given first. And why is that? Because the Bible is a book about Jesus. And where does Jesus come from? He comes from Shem. And so we'll see that Shem is kind of given a priority spot in a lot of these narratives. And it's because Shem is the line that goes to the Messiah. So Shem gets blessed first, not Japheth, even though Japheth is the oldest. But then Japheth gets blessed. And notice even here that the blessing is given in relation to Shem. 
the line from which the Messiah will come. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Everything in relation to Shem here. Uh, and once again, Canaan would be Japheth's servant as well. So um, there's a couple things. So uh, on the surface is um, Shem and Japheth have done a righteous thing. And they're being rewarded for doing a righteous thing. They're being blessed because they were righteous. Just like Noah was blessed by God because he was righteous. And that's why he went on the ark. Um, He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness with Abraham. Um, And so they've done a righteous thing uh, and there's a blessing. Now, the way that this blessing is structured, I think, has another spiritual meaning. Uh, If you you look, if you peel back um, the onion on, on biblical prophecies, almost every biblical prophecy in some way has a relation to the coming Messiah. And this one... The fact that the blessing starts with Shem and starts actually with blessed be the Lord God of Shem, then I think that's pointing to the spiritual reality that the Messiah is coming from Shem and and we're just tracing the thread all the way through from Genesis chapter 3 where we we get the promise of the seed of the woman that's going to strike the head of the serpent. We're tracing that Where's that seed going to come from? Where's that seed going to come from? The Bible traces it and traces it and traces it. Well, it's going to be Shem. And so, therefore, this whole blessing event is focused on Shem. And with, without the, the knowledge that Shem's going to be the one that leads to Messiah, that might be curious. Why is it that the second son and not the oldest is the one you start with? And why is the older son... His blessing in relation to being in the tents of Shem. I think the spiritual lesson there is it's pointing to the Messiah. And that Messiah is coming from Shem. Okay, any other questions about any of that? Uh, Kind of a a very strange event in the Bible, but I think if you you drill down on it and you look at the, especially what the Hebrew says, I think it starts to make sense and it fits into the, the biblical narrative. Even though at first blush it might be a, a little bit confusing. A- everybody thoroughly confused? Yes. Um, from the text, maybe we can't draw that the Lord communicated to Noah that the Messiah would come through him, but possibly, or the Lord tells him to favor Shem, or. Yeah, so. Or, or the Holy Spirit acted and said. Right, so yeah. So where does prophecy come from? The New Testament tells us uh, that prophecy comes from the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's not the prophet's own, um, it's, it's not really coming from the prophet's, the, the, the spiritual meanings are not coming from the, the prophet himself. They're coming from the Holy Spirit. And so these are, these are actually the only recorded words of Noah in the Bible. So if you look at uh, Genesis 6 through 9, we hear a lot about Noah. This is the only quotes of Noah saying anything uh, in the Bible. This little cursings and blessings here of his sons. And, um, and, so he, and he's prophesying. He's prophesying it, um, under the, uh, uh, the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's why it comes out this way. Uh, it comes out with the emphasis on Shem, and you know Noah. It, he, he whether he knows it or not, he's ha- something's being revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that it's Shem. 
that's where the, the Messiah is going to come. And so it's, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about, you know, how much did the prophets know? How much did Isaiah understand of what he was saying? All those prophecies in Isaiah about the, uh, the Messiah, did Isaiah understand what he was saying? I don't think so. Um, we have indication in the New Testament that the prophets longed to understand and see this, this whole story about Messiah, but they didn't. Um, so who knows what Noah really understood about what the Holy Spirit was uh, revealing through him. Uh, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is revealing in God's written word uh, this plan, how this plan is progressing. And it's a unified story, Genesis to Revelation, about uh, God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And what we see in the Old Testament uh, is always part of that story. Always part of that story. Okay, good. Uh, any other questions? Questions, comments? Okay. Um, we're going to have lots of extra time for, uh, for questions here at the end. So uh, then we close out the Toledot. So Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So uh, 600 years before the flood, uh, 350 years after the flood. Uh, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so we get this same little phrase that we got in Genesis chapter 5 about all the patriarchs from Adam up to Noah. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, we see that Noah lived a long time after the flood, uh, a total lifespan of 950 years, the third longest recorded in the Bible. So Noah dies just like everyone before the flood, except Enoch. Enoch's a special case. Um, he was kind of raptured up. Uh, but everybody other than Enoch died, and so we see that the curse from Adam's fall is still in effect. In case there was any doubt, the flood wiped out all but this uh, family of eight, but the curse is still there. Uh, the curse from Genesis chapter 3, that men would die, is still in effect. Noah dies. Uh, we see that here at the end of chapter 9. Uh, this account of the early post-flood world, some number of years, so some number of years have gone by, we talked about that, um, involved only Noah, his three sons, and one grandson. Um, but we will see in chapter 10 that there were other people around, that Japheth and Shem had kids too, uh, not just Ham. Um, and Ham had not just Canaan, but other kids. Um, but this particular story, at the end of the Toledot of Noah, it just as Noah, the three sons, and one grandson involved. Uh, and that brings an end to the Toledot of Noah. Toledot uh, is the Hebrew word that means what came forth from. And so what came forth from Noah, the story of Noah, ends here. He dies. Um, and so in the next verse, we're going to pick up a new Toledot. The Hebrew word Toledot is there to mark off a new section of the narrative. Uh, it's the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Toledot, what came forth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Their descendants, in other words and what happened to their descendants. So uh, the Toledot structure looks like this, and so the, the Toledot of Noah was most of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, 8, and 9. Uh, and then beginning um, next time, we're going to talk about the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, what came forth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that's chapter 10 is the Table of Nations. And then the first nine verses of chapter 11 are the story of the Tower of Babel. And so... Um, 
the 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 tower. Of, so the, chapter ten does these uh, like uh, four or five generations from each of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and actually starts to give some indications about where they lived in some cases, uh, these descendants. But we don't find out until Gen- Genesis chapter 11, well, how was it that they started spreading out? Uh, because we see in Gen- Genesis chapter 11 that up until the Tower of Babel, they all clumped together, and then an event happened in chapter 11, Tower of Babel, God confused their tongue, their languages, and they spread out. Uh, God forced them to spread out. And we'll see how all that happened um, starting next time. And so we'll do a a description of what that looked, what these descendants were, what it looked like. Um, And then after that, as I said, I'm going to drill down and talk about all the implications, what the Bible says about who we are as people descended from these three sons of, uh, of Noah, and what that means for uh, this, the modern idea of race, and what the Bible, what, what, what it means to apply a biblical worldview in today's world, um, and this idea of race. We're going to spend several classes talking about that, uh, but not next time, the time, starting the time after that. Okay, so uh, what, we, what we learned, uh, we talked about Noah's three sons, we talked about this one recorded moral failure of, of Noah, uh, Ham's disgraceful behavior, Shem and Japheth, their righteous response, uh, Noah then responds by cursing Canaan, um, and then out of that little passage of scripture, twisted, uh, we had people that were trying to justify slavery. Um, and then Noah, of course, blesses Shem and Japheth, and there's some uh, spiritual depth to that blessing. Um, and then we see Noah's last years and the end of his life and the end of his Toledot. All right, so we have huge amounts of time for questions. Uh, anybody have any questions? Yes? Well, one, the, the, the wording, I don't know who but... Um, we're told that Ham looked upon his father, but then when Noah talks, he, he knew what he had done, what Ham had done. Yep. So, look, done. Yeah, so what he had done was he had violated a boundary by looking. Uh, just like that's all that it means. That's all that it means. Okay. And so it's the exact same Hebrew word in First Samuel chapter 6, remember, where all they did was look into the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and God killed 70 people for doing that. So it was a really very serious crime to look in a way that violated known boundaries. And so that's all. Um, there, have, there are notions out there that he did something sexual. No, there's nothing in the Hebrew that would indicate that. Yeah, I just wondered about yeah, that. Nothing in the Hebrew that would indicate that. What he did was to look in violation of boundaries. Just like in 1 Samuel chapter 6, they looked into the ark in violation of boundaries. Bam, God killed 70 of them. For doing that. Okay, good. That's a good question. I meant to. I meant to talk about that, and I forgot. Thanks uh, for doing that. I don't that. know if your question was deriving at this, but I would speculate, and I'm not going to read too much in the text, but saying Noah knew. Well, now that we understand the the usage of the word uh, saw and told his uh, uh, brothers, we can probably. Uh, assume or some make that well if he was telling his brothers he was probably a big blather mouth 
And that's how Noah knew when he woke up. Could be, could be. Or he could have known that the robe had slipped off and now the robe was on, so something happened in the night. And yeah, but how he knew it was Ham, somehow he knew it was Ham. Yeah, somehow he knew it was Ham. Okay, uh, yes. I was just wondering um, this, where it says enlarge Japheth. Um, I don't have my study Bible here, but I have a study Bible that has kind of the location for the children mm-hmm. in the world. And it seems, if I remember right, that Japheth, uh, like the northern part, and yeah, does so, that have implication that he yeah, could actually populate more areas? So, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, Japheth did have more descendants than the other two. We'll see that. We'll do that next time. We're going to do the Table of Nations next time. Um, and they covered a. Uh, it seems, both from the biblical record and from historical records, that all of Europe and most of Asia are descendants of Japheth. And so that's a, a really substantial proportion of the population of the world are descendants of Japheth. So um, I think we can uh, deduce from the biblical record and from a pretty good historical record that Japheth was enlarged. Um, that he's that that there are more descendants of Japheth alive today than any other uh, than Ham or um, Shem. That's correct. The the word Semite means descendant of Shem. Yep. And the word Hebrew means descendants of Eber. We'll see. Uh, Eber was um, a great grandson of great great grandson of Noah. We'll see his where he stands in the descendants of Shem. But Eber lived for a long time. Uh, was around for a long time, well into the time of Isaac and Jacob, for example. Um, he was uh, like the great-great-grandfather of, of uh, or great-great-great-grandfather of Abraham, but he lived a huge amount of time. And so um, great-great-granddaddy Eber would have been a famous guy for being around for a long time. And the word Hebrew means descendant of Eber. Yeah, so why Canaan and that's one of his other sons? There's been speculation like since Ham was the youngest, he decided to curse Ham's youngest. Uh, I, I don't know. That's just a speculation. Um, or the Lord and the Holy Spirit were able to look down through history and see those Canaanites are going to be really, 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 really wicked. Um, and so they were the ones to curse. Um, so God can see past, present, and future like we can't. And um, he's absolutely sovereign over, not only is he sovereign over his creation, but he knows he's omniscient. Not omniscient just about the present, but omniscient about past, present, and future. And so um, we do see from subsequent history that these descendants of Canaan are particularly wicked. And so maybe that's why it was Canaan and his descendants that were that were cursed. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't really thought about that. That Noah Noah knew these boys for a hundred years, and so he he knew he knew which one was which. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, um, any other questions or, or comments uh, about any of this? I'm trying to picture in my mind what all this stuff looked like, and uh, there isn't anything in there that says what Mrs. Noah was doing during the time uh, of this. Good point. And uh, I didn't realize or think about this until just now when you were teaching this, that it looks like Noah is not a social drinker. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he gets drunk, yeah. 
a different picture than I had in my mind initially yeah. about what's going on in this situation. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we, we find, we get this one incident. I mean, we, we don't, it, it's, it's the way of some, many of the biblical stories. We, we know, we have just a glimpse of a person's life. So Noah lives 950 years, and we know like a, a dozen things about him um, when he did millions of things in his life um, of almost a thousand years. Um, so there, there's a lot you don't know. You, you, we know what the Holy Spirit wants us to know in order to be able to follow the story of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation um, and to understand that the fall applies to everyone. And so I think that's why the story is in here, that um, Noah's this righteous character, and he's always obedient to God. And, um, and so if this story was not in there, you might think, you might get the wrong impression, well, maybe Noah was sinless. No, we, we, get, uh, we get this little glimpse of different, uh, of these heroes of the faith, uh, you know, the Hebrews chapter 11 people like Noah, uh, that they must be perfect. No, they're not. They're not perfect. <clears throat> and it's a good point about Mrs. Noah and also Mrs. Ham. We don't know what Mrs. Ham was up to um, or any of the other uh, wives. So, um, yeah, so was Mrs. Noah in the tent also? We don't know. Um, you know, it's um, there's, there's all sorts of... Um, we don't know completely. So we know truly... So everything in the Bible is true, but it's not complete. It's not complete knowledge. We don't get to know everything. Um, and so there's mysteries. Uh, what was Mrs. Noah doing? Um, why wasn't Mrs. Ham taking Ham by the ear and making sure he behaved? Um, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, good point, though. Yeah. The fact that we know that God wanted man in charge, and that women were to be you know, submissive to their husbands. Husbands were to love their wives, of course, we know that. From yeah. And um, yeah. wives were to submit to their husbands. So to me, it kind of points to that authority. I mean, that's why we're getting told about the men. The men are the ones that are going to stand before God and an answer for yeah there there is i mean the bible's clear about who's responsible for example for original sin right you know so the, he tried to blame him he tried to blame him he tried to blame god but the bible for the whole rest of the bible makes really clear it's adam's sin that was he was held responsible um and so yes there's certainly this that na- the, the the nature of how god has structured the family um yes but we do have in other places of the Bible um, stories about women. Uh, I mean, you have a, the book of Esther, for example, that's really focused on that one particular lady. Uh, you have the story of Ruth that's really focused on uh, Naomi and Ruth. Um, you have judges like Deborah, for example, uh, later on. So the Bible... Um, it's not that the Bible ignores women, but in many of the stories, like this one, uh, we don't get to hear anything about what the wives are doing. Okay, all right, let me close this with a word of prayer.